This is the final of our very intense three-part program over 36 hours or so, right? Are you on California time yet? Okay. Well, you'll get there by the time you leave, as you mentioned. Our topic for today, anybody here for the first time? Okay, so I'm not going to do the intro bio of this series. All of you look familiar, mostly, except for the people visiting. Who Roz is? No, you're pointing at Roz. Roz is a longtime patron of CSP. Did you come to yesterday? Do you know who the speaker is? My husband came yesterday okay. because I had... Okay, fine, fine. This is not an open... No, I didn't mean an open discussion. I just wanted to make sure... Okay, well, we have an artist of renown from who was born in Kansas City, Missouri, moved to Israel. We learned your story over the last 36 hours. Um, and the focus of your art is, uh, let's see, I have this, it's a different one. Of great concern to Andy um, are primary issues surrounding the differences between Jews and Arabs, between religion, religious and non-religious, between Jewish law and contemporary society, between men and women, between young and old. And that's what we've explored the last two programs. Today's program is entitled um, Living Underwater, which is different, yet the same, maybe? We'll find out. And it's a contemporary issue that Andy's working on in Venice. And at the end, you'll hear more about how you can get involved in this project. I know, you're going to hear that. So uh, please join me in welcoming back Andy Arnovitz, last program in Orange County, until your next visit. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I just want to say thank you again to Ari and uh, the program. This has really been a lot of fun for me. And your enthusiasm is, uh, it actually is what makes being an artist worthwhile. So I'm going to, today's going to be much more casual because um, this is an unfinished project. Everything I've shown you up till now is something that's finished. This is in process. So I'm probably going to contradict myself, forget things, go backwards. So I'm apologizing in advance. But I'm going to start with a joke. So God says, guys, I'm done. I'm so annoyed with you. I'm bringing another flood. And this time, there's no Noah. Everybody's going. So the priest goes to his flock and says, everybody needs to repent We've got 24 hours, and the end of the world, the apocalypse, is coming. And the iman goes to his people, and he says, Guys, you all need to recognize Allah. You need to pray, because in 24 hours, we're done. And the rabbi goes to his Jewish people and says, Guys, we have 24 hours to learn how to live underwater. Okay? So that's the name of the project. So I'm going to um, try to explain how this became my baby. So Ari alluded to, you had a scholar in residence here, um, Mark Epstein, the professor, who talked about illuminated manuscripts. So three years ago, we were together in Venice under the auspices of something called Bet Venezia, which is the home for Jewish culture in Venice. They decided that they wanted to take a very famous Haggadah, the 1609 Venetian Haggadah, and re-edition it with artists making contemporary statements about Venice. So they brought eight artists to Venice, and they stuck us in this pretty vile dormitory. And we worked in something called the Scuola de Grafica, which is perhaps the most beautiful etching studio I've ever worked in in my entire life. Um, and then we left, and we created these the suite of etchings that had to go with the Haggadah, and the Haggadah never got produced. Supposedly, they're trying to find funding today to produce it. 
So because Jerusalem, because Israel is so close to Italy, I try to make it my business to go to the Venice Biennale every year. It's only a three-hour flight. El Al flies nonstop now to Venice. So two years ago, I flew, and I called Shaul Bassi, who's the head of Bet Venezia, the home for Jewish culture, and I said, I'm here. I'd love to have a drink with you. Um, and he said, great. So we sat down together, and he goes, listen, I want to do a new project, and I want you to be the lead artist. I want to do something about climate change. And I said, oh, my God, that's so cool. And I said, what do you want to do? He goes, I don't know. You decide, but I want you to be the lead artist. Okay, so first of all, let's talk about how incredibly dreamy for an artist that is. So um, I was telling Ari, there's a saying in my family, I gave her an unlimited budget and she exceeded it. <laughs> so, so I basically, instead of just doing a suite of prints, I turned this into a behemoth, like a massive project. Um, I think I freaked out all the people in Venice in the Jewish community but we're doing it. It's pretty incredible. So the project is called Living Underwater. This is a photograph I took the day we left. And I just want you to pay attention to the chimneys, because these chimneys are going to come back. Um, and I'm going to do something with these chimneys. So Venice and, and Shaul Bas, so let me just do it a little aside. You're going to see a picture of Shaul in a few minutes. He is Venetian but from the last 500 years. His family have been Venetian Jews forever. Now, the Venetian Jewish community is shrinking, and Venice is sinking. Um, and he said, you know, for him, Venice is a metaphor for the entire global problem, and the Jewish community of, of Venice is another metaphor for a shrinking globe. And, and shrinking mankind. So this is a picture from the Chini Foundation, which is a little island that's, that's across from St. Mark's Square on a very rainy day. But Venice is having major problems. And we had gorgeous weather the three weeks we were there. And the day we left, they had an Agua Alta. They had the highest level of water flooding they've had in 40 years. And the Venetians that we were with that we got to know sent me pictures. The streets that we were walking on, they were kayaking down. The water was up to here. Um, so, and we're going to get to, in a, in a few minutes, some of the issues. So the Jewish ghetto in Venice was established in 1516. That's how old it is. And it's, it's at the end of the island in Canareggio, and it's the area in Venice where the foundries were. And in, in Venetian, they're known as ghetti. That's where ghetto comes from. The ghetto was closed every night from 6 p.m. until 12 noon. The Jews were not allowed to leave. So there's five, for those of you that have, I bet, how many of you have been to Venice? That's amazing. Okay, so this will be even more interesting for you. So the five synagogues that exist there have been there since the 16th and 17th centuries. Okay, this is Shaul Basi. This is actually the moment when I showed him the prototype for the project. So he's kind of excited. Um, this is me talking about the project. This is the average Jew still left in Venice. Just pay attention to the average age here. There's not a single young person in that audience. Okay, the, the, it costs too much, it's inconvenient, and most of the children of these Venetian Jews have left Venice. So, what did I do? 
I told Shaul, I want to do a zine. A zine is a magazine. And this is the prototype, and I'm going to pass it around later. I want to do something huge, artistic, colorful. I want it to be full of essays by scholars. I want it to be loud and clear what Judaism has to offer in terms of climate change. I want to bring five incredible artists who all have printmaking experience, because we're going to get to use this amazing etching studio again. And I want to do Skype lectures with all these scholars. And Shaul said, OK, if you can pull this off, good for you. Um, and I kind of did. So one of the nice things is that Shaul said, well, the Scuola de Grafica has sold the dorms. And I was, oh, you know, darn. It was horrible. I'm too old to sleep in a dorm bed. And he said, instead, I have this uh, Contessa who has a palazzo that she's not living in anymore. And she's going to let the five of you live there. So we got to live in this amazing palazzo, Palumbo Fasati, which is like around the corner from the Fenice. And this is our first night in the dining room. And you can see I'm kind of glowing, because this is a year's worth of work. And I finally assembled the scholars, the people from Bet Venezia, and the other four artists here in this palazzo. And we began. Now, I'm going to show you. This may not, these pictures may not turn you on, but these are pictures of the palazzo. And these, the five of us walked into this place, and artists, like, we lost our minds. There was so much to look at. Every drawer of this palazzo was stuffed with postcards and tickets that were 40 years old. These people have never thrown anything away. They make my hoarding look like a hobby. Um, this, there's about 100 years worth of stuff here. They had like antique maps laying on chairs. And it, the whole thing was amazing. So this is where we lived. And this is some of the artists. This is an incredible guy named Fabio Cavalletto. And if any of you are going to Venice, so he's an amazing guy that does boat trips off the main island, away from St. Mark's, to show you the lagoon. Because most people fly into Venice, they take the boat from the airport to the main island, and they don't look at the lagoon. And the lagoon is the entire story. So he took us out in this boat, and he showed us the outlying islands. He showed us the wildlife. He showed us the birds. He showed us all the endangered animals that are living around there. He showed us the places that are flooding. He showed us the silt. He was amazing. In addition, every day the first week, we had a Skype lecture from one of the scholars. We had a guy from California nine time zones away. Every night, I panicked and thought, oh my god, do I have a Skype name? And what if the internet doesn't work? I don't need to tell you that in these old palazzos, the internet is not so reliable. And so we had a lot of this, where the artists would, we were just sitting around having a Skype lecture, asking questions and learning. So this is us also in the etching studio, OK? Continuing to learn. One of the things I created was a whole non-toxic um, lesson with the, the head printmaker, the master printmaker there. Even though we etched the old-fashioned way, I really wanted everybody to learn that there's non-toxic methods. To be really honest, etching is not a particularly um, environmentally sound process. You use pretty bad stuff. You clean up with pretty bad stuff. Um, but there are new processes. 
I also, do you see the journals? I gave each artist a journal. So, so let me tell you what the requirements are. I picked these, these four artists, these four other artists, and I said, okay, you're gonna get a little bitty stipend, enough to cover your flight. You're gonna have to barely sleep, walk, I can't tell you how many miles we walked every day. You're gonna have to turn in at the end 15 finished journal pages for an exhibition. You're gonna have to finish two etchings that are gonna be a suite of 10 etchings for the final exhibition. And you're gonna have to participate in a round robin that I'm gonna show you in a little bit. And they were all, this is the thing, is it like how hard do you think you have to twist an artist's arm to come to Venice for three weeks? So here we are, we're having more Skype lessons, we're exploring this whole climate change thing. So one of the things we did was we went and we visited the new MOSE project. Now MOSE stands for Modulo Spiramental Electromechanicho. It's the Experimental Electromechanical Module. Okay, and it works about as well as I just said it. Okay, it's supposed to be finished in two, 2022. It is full of bad press. It was supposed to cost $2 billion. It's already at $6.5 billion, and they're not sure this thing is gonna work. This is, this is basically what they've done, is they've created three sort of uh, inlets, and this thing is supposed to come up and create a seawall to prevent Venice from flooding. Okay, I have to honestly tell you, it's massive, it's so expensive, and the entire time we were getting a tour of this thing, the only thing I could think of was the saying, man plans and God laughs. Because in my opinion, this is gonna, they're already saying the salt is corroding it, you know, there's not enough money to maintain it. I don't know if this is gonna work. So this is one of the things we explored that first week. The other thing we explored is that in the ghetto there was a deserted lot that they have turned into a biblical garden. Um, and this is the first time I actually saw a new project that felt for me like there was the potential for new life in the Jewish community in the ghetto. And you're gonna see later that one of the artists really did a riff on this. It's not very old. It's only about a year old in this picture, but it was so beautiful. It's tiny. Now, the other thing that we did was we just kept our eyes open. And for those of you that have been to Venice, every time you blow your nose, that Kleenex has to get boated out of Venice. Every peanut you put in your mouth, every glass of wine you drink, every piece of toilet paper you use had to get boated in and taken out, like you see the trash boats in the morning. So we were watching all of this. I mean, this is how they, they work. You know, this is how they repair a building. They bring in huge cement trucks on boats. So we're trying to synthesize all this stuff, this ancient, amazing European city that's sinking in the 21st century, trying to battle climate change, um, and then we had this other side, which was in the palazzo, we kept discovering these amazing treasures. This little globe, this little amazing book, which is like 200 years old, we found in a drawer. What um, Maydad is over there exploring is a traveling artist's kit. These were the barometers and thermometers in the, in the library. So everywhere we turned, there were echoes of what we were trying to do and all these symbols. Now the other thing I did, crazily, is that I created this, this intervention table. So 
I came with two duffels. One was my clothes, and the other one were art toys for the artists. So I brought maps, I brought fake trees, I bought fake snow, I brought ice cube trays, I brought plastic animals, I brought everything that I could think of that artists would play with. And the idea is that an artist would do something and another artist would do something to what he did and we'd keep recording this. So this is an example of what happened one morning when we walk, woke up. Okay, this giant map of the world was laying there with all these boats with floating palm trees. This is a picture of the Squala de Grafica. Now, it may not turn anybody in this room on. I needed a drool cup. This was the most incredible place to produce etchings I've ever been in. Okay? It's old. It's also meticulously maintained. Like, they absolutely do not put up with any sloppiness. If you go out to lunch there, you have to clean your entire space, tidy it up, come back and start over. They have amazing standards. Um, and it's just, it's simply the most gorgeous etching studio to work in. So here we are. We're trying to plan our etchings. That's the goodie table, the surprise table. And in that hat, so I divided up topics because I didn't want every artist to do an etching about the same thing. So everybody pulled topics out of a hat. And the second and third weeks, we had to go off and do our etchings. So this is a picture of one of the plates. Okay, so how many people here understand what an etching is? Okay, that's amazing. So for those of you that don't, I'm going to give you like a, a two-second uh, uh, guide of what an etching is. You basically take a piece of metal, either iron or copper or brass, and you can either coat it with something like asphalt and then with the needle draw into it, and then put that plate in acid, and everywhere that's exposed, the metal's exposed, the acid eats into the metal and creates a permanent recording of your drawing. Or you can do what's happening here, which is the places that she wanted to stay white, she taped off. And this is something called spit bite, where she randomly paints the acid on the plate and it eats away at the plate. Here we are testing our, doing proofs. Okay, everybody's inking up their plates. We're having a great time. Never mind that it's 11 o'clock at night and no one can see straight because it was a very tight schedule. We had to tear all the paper. We had to do everything ourselves. But this amazing thing happened. We, we literally became a family by the end of this thing. Here we are working on our plates, on our prints. So now I'm going to tell you a little bit about the prints. So this is my suite. Each artist had to do two. Now, I have to be really honest with you. This is not my best work. Okay, we had a very limited amount of time, and there's some crazy things that happen in Venice. It's very humid. The paper and the acid react differently to the weather. So things that I've always done that always worked in 20 minutes didn't work. Okay, there were processes that they do differently there. This was ferric acid. I usually etch with nitric acid. I screwed up my plates twice and had to start over. So we were under time pressure, and the... the equipment, the, the technical stuff, didn't perform exactly the way we were used to, any of us. So see the chimneys? See the trees coming out of the chimneys? Remember that first photograph? So one of the things that we talked about with all of these scholars in our Skype lessons was adaptability. One of the things that's going to have to happen with climate change is human beings are going to have to become more adaptive. And so I kept thinking, wow, those chimneys, first of all, to me, the chimneys look so factory-like. They're huge. And I thought, what would happen 
if a tree grew out of every one of those chimneys in Venice, it would change the whole city. So that was one of my ideas. And then you're going to see in a little while this little timer. I found this, this hourglass, this little miniature hourglass in my bedroom, and I schlepped it with me everywhere. And I took pictures of this, of this egg timer, this hourglass, all over Venice. So there's little figures in a very futile way running up and down the ladder, refilling this thing over and over and over again. And they're wearing the little hats that the Jews in the ghetto were forced to wear. This is Linz. This is the blueprint of the biblical garden. It says, Paradise Paradox. The other one is, shows a boat coming under one of the bridges. Okay, and it says dis-ease. So everybody was interpreting all the things we were learning in different ways. So Leora is really a children's illustrator. She has a completely different style than the rest of us. So she got completely turned on by the idea of a biblical leviathan, like a sea monster, and, um, and Venice, and the idea of the monster encroaching on the city of Venice. So she did this suite of etchings. This is Kenny Goldman, and Kenny is obsessed with Venetian publishing. And, and there was a period when, at the height of Jewish book publishing, the center of this was Venice. And so he loved the book plates that all those Sfarim, all those books have in the, in the beginning. So he used those as a, as a starting place. And Maydad, this is, um, this is something called dry point. So he, actually, to be honest, he was the smartest one of all of us because he just didn't use acid. Dry point is when you just draw with a needle straight on the metal. Okay, there's no acid, nothing. You just draw on the metal. And I don't know if you can see, but there's, when you do dry point, it's something called a burr. Because you're literally drawing with this needle into the acid, you displace the metal, and that's called a burr. And that little fuzzy bit holds ink. So you get this soft, fuzzy edge to the drawing. Now, the one on the left, I, I mean, the one on the right, I particularly love because in the Venetian Jewish Museum, there's a beautiful parochet. There's a, a curtain for the ark that's embroidered and very elaborate. So that is actually the parochet, but the Mose project that I showed you, this, this crazy project, in some modern things in this ancient parochet. This is the intervention. So this started way before any of the artists got to Venice. I sent each artist in July a blank piece of paper. They had to do something on the paper, scan it, and then send it to the next artist. So each artist did something to the persons before. So it's kind of a metaphor for the layers of mankind and, and also how each generation puts their imprint on the earth. But it's also kind of amazing what happens. So this is also going to be in the zine. And then I thought what I would do, you saw these actually for people that were here last night. The journal that I have with me now is the journal that I took to Venice last October, which also kind of tells you how slowly I've been working. But um, these are some of my journal pages. And this is where I, where I began to decide, you know what, I'm going to have trees coming out of those, those chimneys. Um, okay, now I want to stop for a minute and I want to tell you about the scholars and I want to tell you about what Judaism has to say about climate change. So, um, I mean, you don't know me very well, but 
I just decided I was going to find the most amazing people to be part of this magazine. So I wrote Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. <laughs> and I said, don't you want to be part of this magazine? So his secretary wrote me back very nicely. And she said, I'm sure he does, but he doesn't have time to write a new essay. But you may reproduce his Tubishvat essay. And I thought, OK, that's great. Um, so we have an essay in here by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Then we have an essay. Do you know who Nigel Savage is from Chazon? Nigel wrote the most amazing essay. Um, he also was so in love with this project that he came to Venice for the first three days and was like our little mini scholar in residence. Um, then we've got uh, Andrea Most. She's a professor of American literature and environmental studies and Jewish studies in the Department of English at the University of Toronto. She also came and was a scholar in residence. She has also a, a separate thing called Bella Farm outside of Toronto, which is a Jewish, ethical, organic farm. Then we had um, Alone Tall. Now, Alone is amazing. Um, and he's an advocate for environmental, environmentalism, but he's also he does this balance between academia and public interest advocacy. He's on the faculty of Ben-Gurion University. And he's a visiting professor at the Center for Conservation Biology at Stanford. I, he was here, I think. Um, he's completing a book on Israeli overpopulation. Now, I also have to say that one of the things I wanted was I did not want a magazine that basically touted pablum. In other words, I didn't want every scholar to be saying the exact same thing. So Alone Tall says, hey, guys, what has the biggest carbon footprint? A human being. We have no business having four, five, six children. Everybody should have two kids. Now, you can imagine how popular that is to tell Jewish people you should only have two kids. Okay, and I had a poet who said, I don't know if I want to be in your magazine if you're going to print that. And I said, you have to be in the magazine. I said, we have to have differing points of views. That's what Jewish debate is. But if this or this, I wanted differing points of view. Um, David Marone Wapner is responsible for sustainable technology projects at the Yova Group, a company dedicated to effective strategic planning in times of uncertainty. He wrote one of the essays. Diane Sachs is the environmental commissioner of Ontario, and she wrote an amazing essay. Michael Kagan is a teacher of holistic Judaism. I'm really not sure what that is. And a startup entrepreneur with a PhD in chemistry from Hebrew U. Um, and he wrote an incredible article, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Nigel, I told you about. Um, Rabbi Yonatan Narrell is a native of California. He has an MA and a BA from Stanford with a focus on global environmental issues. He's a rabbi. He speaks internationally on religion and the environment. He's organized three interfaith environmental conferences in Jerusalem. He's an amazing guy. So this just gives you a, a sense of the scholarly articles that took this magazine and bumped it up. Um, so I'm going to just take an aside here for a minute and tell you a little bit about what Judaism has to say about climate change. So Michael Kagan's essay, he basically says, Shabbat. The Shabbat is the last big gift the Jews have to give mankind. And we're not talking about our Shabbat. It doesn't have to be Saturday. It can be any day of the week. But the idea that you stop consuming, that you stop buying, that you stay home, that you let the world rest, would change climate change, would, would alter it instantly if every human being on Earth 
took one day and made that their Shabbat. Okay, I think that's amazing. That the concept of that is amazing. Shemitah. Like Shemitah in terms of, of climate change and the environment, this is an incredible concept. So the magazine is full of these kinds of things, which says, yes, the Jewish people have what to say about climate change. We have our own unique point of view, and it's special, and we can actually make a difference. So I'm going to be, I mean, you know me by now. You know I love poetry. So I'm going to read you one of the poems that's in the magazine. The Longest Lunar Eclipse of the Century. I always wonder how the power plant got there. Three smokestacks in love with the beach. We're talking about Ashkelon. And the curious effect they generate, attracting sharks to the sodium lights, the warm clouds they emit, so that an enterprising dive shop has started offering tours, and the thin neck of sand, how it curves, acquiescent, with the wedding couples facing north, so there is no possibility of ugliness. Only small portions of ceviche passed around, or mini kebabs, and the bride, foamy white, Life is beautiful, beautiful, and so then are we. There is no sound more comforting than the 6 a.m. garbage truck, the sigh of the brakes, the thump of the empty bin returned, and I don't even have to roll over, or maybe just to my back and wonder, what time do those guys get up? There's an environmental park built on the national garbage dump. Gone is the wrinkled mountain of trash, the wings of birds sucked into jet planes, replaced by biogas piped to a factory, sewage treated with bacteria, furniture made of tires and cans, while methane trickles back to the core. And everything seems to work just fine, but I still toss out foil pans and plastic forks. Oh, and batteries too. I know there's recycling somewhere, but I never seem to get to it. I miss the lunar eclipse as well. Slept right through the event of the century, that no one alive will ever see again. Even Mars came by for a look. Some negative souls declared it a bad omen. But I thought, so this is what the planets can do. Earth enwrapping its cloak of darkness, the moon looking bloody and well-fed, coming closer and closer. So there's another piece of the zine. I gave each artist a snow, a snow globe kit. And I said, you've got to produce a snow globe that's going to be part of the exhibition. So do, do any of you remember when I said I'd done my first 3D model? So the palazzo with the tree growing out of it is the first time I've ever done anything 3D. And I'm, we have time, so I'm just going to take a minute and tell you how incredible the internet can be. So one of the artists, I'd, I spent three weeks making this stupid palazzo with the tree growing out of the chimney out of paper. I watercolored it. I made every little shingle on the roof out of paper and glued them, held a tweezer, and did this whole thing. And Kenny Goldman, one of the artists who's a, a very dear friend, came by and said, what are you doing? This is so stupid. You should do a 3D model. And I said, I have no idea how to do that. And he said, go to the website Shapeways, join the forum, put your call out there, and see what you get back. So I said, OK. So I joined the forum of Shapeways. I said, I'm looking for someone to do a 3D file for me of a Venetian palazzo with a tree going out of the chimney. And I got emails from computer guys in Mumbai, in Amsterdam, and Iowa, and 
you name it. I got like, my inbox was full. There must have been at least 12 people that replied, yeah, I can do this. So right away, the guy who said, you, you mean the Palazzo in Las Vegas? And I said, no, I don't think I'm using him. Um, but they all had portfolios. And I looked at their portfolios and I found the guy who I thought did as fine a work as I wanted in India. I'll never meet him. So he and I went back and forth on the internet. He would send me drawings. I would say, um, no, the palazzos have brick underneath, but they're stucco. And the first few he gave me were, they just, they didn't look like Venetian palazzos. Um, and I learned so much in this process because the palazzo is actually made of sandstone. It's a 3D print, but it's made of sandstone and it actually comes out in color. Just what you see is what you get. The tree, on the other hand, 3D printing, you can only get things that are so thin, and then th the printer won't do it. So the tree that we originally did looked like a Lego tree. You know, it had no delicacy to it. It didn't look like a real tree. Like the palazzo looks like a real palazzo, but the tree looked ridiculous. So then I learned that there's something called fine plastic 3D prints that you have to paint. They, they only come in white, but they're super delicate. So I, I had a learning curve, but I have to tell you that the entire experience was amazing. And as an artist, it opened up a whole new way of doing art because once you do this, you realize, oh, I could do that, I could do that. Like the things that I've made by hand in porcelain, you can actually do a 3D mold and have a porcelain factory make the things for you exactly how you want. So for me, this was amazing. So Leora did this incredible paper mache sea monsters. Kenny did, so the lion, funny enough, the lion is a symbol of Jerusalem. It's also the symbol of Venice. Maydad did this figure, and Lynn did this. So I'm going to show you. So, so the other thing I did is all along here, the um, unlimited budget exceeding it piece. So I just kept. Every single person I met, I talked about the project. I got a little money here, a little money there. I got enough money to, have, to hire an Italian videographer because I wanted to document the entire process. So these are actually some, some outtakes from Lucia, who's doing the, the film, um, of us working. This is the little um, hourglass that I found in my room in the palazzo that I took with me everywhere. I thought it was an amazing symbol for the whole idea that, of climate change. This is how we ink the plates before we print. This is Kenny working on something. This is an you know, example of the etched plate. You can see the parts that are shiny and the parts that are etched. This is us printing. And now for a big piece of the project. So my idea was that we would produce an oversized magazine with all the art and all the essays that a day school could learn from, that you guys could learn from, that a synagogue could learn from, that, uh, that anybody that wants to get a group together to study climate change from a Jewish point of view could do. So I got enough money to hire a graphic designer. This is just the prototype. And it's changing and evolving. And this is just the first few pages. This is a picture of the fish farms in Kibbutz Shluchot in August. That's, one of, that's where Kenny, the artist, lives. So 
So the interventions are going to be in there, the snow globes are going to be in there, the poetry is going to be in there, the essays are going to be in there, the journals are going to be in there. So this is the project. I'm going to pass this around. I'm going to be really honest with you and say we need all the help we can get. So, so there's two components, three really. There's the magazine. Then we decided, this is ridiculous. Why are we going to be mailing? And it's going to be me. There's no staff in Venice that can handle this. This is going to be me in Jerusalem running to the post office every five minutes with one of these and praying that it gets to Israel, I mean to America, which is our target audience. North America is our target on, our, the target audience for the project. And then we said we should do a digital download. Like we should do a digital download that costs, I don't know, $20 that any congregation, any day school, anybody can use. So that's the goal. And also, it allows us over time to expand the magazine. You know, as people get turned on and as people have points of view and as scholars learn about it, we can grow the thing. So that's one, that's one part, two really. And then the other part is an exhibition. So the exhibition, the premiere of the exhibition is going to be part of the Jerusalem Biennale of Jewish Art. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been to Jerusalem around, the, around Sukkot, but every other year there's this amazing Biennale that a guy named Rami Ozeri started that is the Jerusalem Biennale of Jewish Art, and there's always a theme every year. So this coming October, the theme is For the Sake of Heaven. I don't think we could have picked a better theme for the project. So I submitted a proposal as an artist and a curator that this exhibition be part of the Biennale. So what's going to happen is you're going to walk in the room. There's going to be a table with the magazine. There's going to be a table with the five journals in beautiful wooden boxes with glass tops with iPads in front of each one with gifts going so you can see all the pages in each artist's journal. Then there's going to be a table with the five snow globes. On one wall is going to be the suite of 10 etchings. On the back wall is going to be the video that Lucia is doing. And on this wall, it's going to look like the wall of an artist's studio. There's going to be our sketches. There's going to be art pieces that people do. There's going to be our photographs. There's going to be labels. It's going to look like a giant artist studio wall. So that's the goal. It was accepted. It's going to be part of the Biennale. And while I was in Venice, I met with the curators of the Venetian Jewish Museum. And of course, they said, well, this needs to be here. This belongs in Venice. But they're doing a big renovation. So in 2020, the show should go to Venice. Then I met with Charlene Seidel of the Leishtag Foundation. And she thought this was amazing. And she said, we should bring this to San Diego. And I met with some people that are involved in the 92nd Street Y in New York, and they said this should come to New York. So now, of course, since I'm an optimist, I think the thing's going to go around the world. There's no money to take it around the world. Um, but I will say that, like the proposal I'm doing now with the carpenter to build the tables, I said to him, the legs have to come up, the whole thing has to collapse and go in a box. Like, I, I do badly want this thing to go around, and I think it's important. I think this is one of the most important projects in the Jewish world right now. So um, that's the end of my presentation. I'd like to sort of open it up for questions because I'm sure there are plenty of questions. And I'm also going to pass this around. Just keep in mind that this is just a prototype. Okay? It's also like a really bad print, which means it scratches and chips, which the real one won't.
Does anybody have any questions? I don't really have a question, Arnie. We, we were, some of us were having a conversation about whether art should stand on its own or whether this context, this absolutely amazing context that you provided uh, is really important. And my feeling is that anytime Enriches, it so much enriches our concept of, of what you have attended to. The con you've led us into what has drawn your attention, um, your intimacy with your materials. Um, the richness that you provided was what I felt in your home, and I thank you for coming. Wow. Thank you for making this happen. Uh, I guess my question is, in addition to this, what else are you working on these days? Because you said you do three or four simultaneous projects. So this, is, this has really got my heart and soul right now. I just totally believe that the Jewish people need this. And there isn't anything, there's no sort of collection of Jewish thought about climate change out there. So there's a lot of my time right now being expended on this project. And by the way, I'm not getting paid. Like, I got $1,500. That's it, for the whole thing. And it's been months and months and months of my time. But I, I, I think as, a, as an artist, this is going to be a legacy that I leave behind. So I'm completely committed to this project. So I'm working on that. I should have brought pictures of this piece I'm doing about the Syrians. So um, I alluded, I think, briefly, maybe yesterday in the noon lecture, that um, Jerusalem had this wicked snow four years ago, and the whole city shut down. I mean, it just this thing stayed on the ground for a long time. And I was very, very aware that, you know, 100 miles away, there were Syrians that had lost everything that were living in this freezing weather. And um, I decided that I was going to do a, a visual infographic. So what I've done is I've created this Grim Reaper kind of, sh of dress. It's out of black linen with a hood. And I've created these circular tags. Each tag has a picture of either a man, a woman, or a child. And each one of those faces represents 10 civilians. And it starts in 2011. They're very light. And each year of the conflict, those tags get darker and darker until they're black. We're sewing on something like 45,000 of them. So this is a project that's going to take two years. And the way I designed the, the shroud, this dress, is that I can keep adding linen to the train of it so the thing can keep getting longer and longer. So if it's, if it's hanging here, we've sewn about this much, and we're only in 2013. And, and of course, the, the, the number of civilians killed keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's something I'm working on. I, last night, I talked about this artist book about the poetry of Esther Robb. Um, so that's something that I'm working on. And then I'm going to start a new series that I'm not 
there was, a, there was a page in my journal last night. There was one page that's, that was started the exploration. It was like a, a woman's pelvis with a baby. Um, it has to do with this place that women have are, that, that life is centered from. And uh, one of the pieces that I want to do, it's pretty uh, in your face, um, is that there's going to be curated a show at the L.A. Mayor Museum of Islamic Art in 2020. I talked about this, where Palestinian and Israeli women are critiquing the religion from inside the religion. And the piece is going to be called, um, I'm a Kohenet Gadolet, and my children are the jewels on my breastplate. And so basically, spilling out of my insides, out of the place where a breastplate would be are going to be all these jewel-colored flowers. And attached to all of them are going to be little bells. Um, and it's, it's really about how we see ourselves within the context of Judaism and the role models that we have. So that's something I'm working on. Um, and that's, that's pretty much it for the main projects now. I, I, so, well, I'm sure you'll find other stuff to keep you busy if that's not enough. Uh, did you pass along the gene of your artistic ability to any of your children that you mentioned in the prior pro Um So each of my kids, I would say, is sort of artistic a little bit. Actually, two of them really aren't. <laughs> but um, my second... This is being recorded, so you may want, not want to use names, but I'm not they'll okay, figure so it out when they... My hear. second daughter is a graphic designer. She graduated from Betzalel in graphic design, and she is a, a graphic designer. That's her job. Um, and my daughter-in-law is a graphic designer. Um, I have to say that I have a couple kids that can take or leave a museum. They'd rather have a Coke in a hotel lobby. Um, but I think they all have an aesthetic. And I think, I think the most important thing is that I think each of them understand that, that art has the power to change things. Um, I would say that that is the best gift I gave them. And I'll ask another question before we see what else has. Um, what is your favorite museum in Israel? So when we go on our trip in 2020, we shouldn't miss it. It could be in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem. It could be one in Tel Aviv, one in Jerusalem, or other places. So I have two favorite museums. Um, actually, that's not true, three. So the Israel Museum. I mean, I don't know how many of you have seen it since James Snyder did the $500 million renovation, but... There are corners of the Israel Museum that take your breath away, particularly the new um, ethnographic wing where you walk in and there's a glass circle of cases that have to do with all the life cycle events in Judaism. It's everything from a wimple to you know, a wedding dress to a shroud. So first of all, for me, it's like seamless exhibition design because it's a circle, and everything in it has to do with the circle of life. And I don't know how many of you have been there, but that back wall of that wing that's menorahs is one of the most gorgeous things I've ever seen. The, the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. Um, so that's a, you have to go there. And the truth is, is that that's my favorite wing. That's also the wing that has the four synagogues that are completely reconstructed, the Suriname one, the Italian one, the Polish one, they're so beautiful. Is that, is that where uh, Akiva goes in Stiesel? 
to one of the yeah. synagogues? Oh, he's in the Italian synagogue yes, in Stiesel. Yes, I have no idea how they got permission to do that. Anyway, so the Israel Museum, the Museum, the museum of Art in Ein Harod. So to me, architecturally, this is one of the gems of Israel museums. Um, it's just that it's really far. You know, it's, it's in the valley. It's like uh, just before you get to, to Tiberia, to Tiberias. So it's a schlep, but it's a gorgeous museum. And then in Haifa, so people just don't get to Haifa. But there's the Hermann Struck Museum, which is like a little bitty museum. There's an artist book show there now that I have two artist books in. It's a beautiful museum. Um, so I would say those are my three picks. It's called the Museum of the Ein Har It's called Mishkan Laomanut. It's the Museum of Art in Ein Harod, which is literally in the like in the center of the country. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful museum. You mentioned uh, that you need all the assistance that you can get, uh, and I wonder how one might uh, assist you. Is there any method that you have set up? Yeah. Um, so there is a Friends of the Italian Jewish Community um, tax-free account here in California that people can send their checks to, and it goes into my project. And I'm really happy to give anybody that information. Well, I think what I'm going to do is I'll be sending out to everybody that participated in this three-part program things from the program. So we'll have yeah, websites and poems and um, this information as well. And thank you for that. I may be mistaken, but uh, there is a fuel freedom fund that is headed by an Israeli here locally and who is greatly concerned with the environment and has a home in Israel as well, as very local to all of us. And um, you may know the Hollanders, and it might be worth putting them in touch with one another. I, th this is all amazing. Roz will go to their house tonight with a little pushka, <laughs> knock on the door like the old days, and we'll do something. I was going to suggest... Um, opening a suggestion line on topics for the zine to cover in the future because as you were doing the presentation, my mind was just reeling about having the cities that you go to create um, uh, time, time capsules that will survive underwater for future generations oh, to uncover. that's a great uncover. idea. Having, having school kids write letters to the future about what they did wrong and what they miss living underwater and, and just, you know, lots of ideas that could turn into articles or projects for other people to engage in. This. But, you know, crowdsourcing it so that people who see this could come up with what would they like to see in the, in the zine. That's in the a future. great idea. But I so. also, like, I love those ideas. So you're going to have my email, and I'd love to be in touch. I okay. think that would be great. Sure. I mean, definitely for the digital version, we have all the space well, we want. And, 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 and that was my, my question, because my understanding about what a zine was in, in its formation was that it was the, you know, in the, in the aughts, the, the next generation's response to non-paper. So these were supposed right. to be online. 
and when and when you came out with a with with, with an analog version, it was like, well, wait a second, right? Because I thought it, it was going to be an in perpetual, yeah. you know, it was going to be an. In, it's in, both. Yeah. So. But we realized really quickly that this is going to be a behemoth, mm -hmm. and also like. I don't know how many of you have tried to mail anything to or from Israel in the last two years, but the, the artist Lynn Avidenko, who lives in Detroit, when I did the intervention and I mailed that piece of white paper, so it came back two weeks ago. I mailed it in July. It came back to me in Israel two weeks ago. So I was semi-hysterical about the idea of mailing all of these, that people wouldn't get them in a timely fashion, that it would cost me a fortune. So... Doing it digitally is going to solve a lot of problems, and I also think it's a way to generate money, you know, for the project. Right. But I, I love those ideas, and I, I'm open to anything. Like, I think there's definitely a place for that. I'll take one last question, and then we're going to get a big photo with everybody here holding the magazine, okay? Thank you. Um, I'm obsessed about the logistics of everything you do um, just down to, you say you have a piece here and a piece there, and, and once you get, you know, you have to find out where these things are going on, then you have to put in a proposal, then you have to get them there, then you have to get them back. Do you have an a agent or a secondary person that's doing all those things for you at the same time that you're doing the creative part of your Profession. It's a profession, too. So I have a studio assistant, um, Devor Harash. She's my age. She's, actually, she's a few years older than me. She's a ceramicist. So she works in my studio Monday to Thursday for about five or six hours. Um, she did one amazing thing for me, which is about five years ago, she came into my studio and saw that my work was all over the place, that there were no records, nothing was organized, there were no files, low resolution was in the same folder with TIFFs, and she just took one look at this and said, you're a disaster. Um, and she slowly cleaned up all my work so that now, you know, I, I have work folders, they're divided by projects, they're divided low resolution, high resolution TIFFs, which already made a huge thing a big difference in my life because I could sit there for two hours trying to find something and there was no organization. I'm not very good at anything that has to do with a computer. Um, mostly she does sewing. She does things that are super repetitive that I don't need to be doing, that allows me to finish things. The truth is is that I need more help. Um, but I, I, I can't really justify it and to be really honest, having all those people around me while I work is problematic. But I'm thinking about when you get, like you have to find out where there are exhibits yeah, and yeah. you have to get your things to yeah, you. you know, yeah. who, who does that? You me, do that also? Me. I do that. It's, uh, yeah, it's very time consuming. And, and the truth is, is you're hitting a nerve because in the last six months, the requests are much greater. Right. Like just dealing with China for me took hours of my time. Um, and getting the, the contracts back and the shipping forms and, right. and all those kind of things. So I don't know what's going to happen. Um, and I'm also very careful now about the call for work that I respond to. Like, it needs to be worth my while. And I have a huge problem because a lot of the shows in America, they need you to get your work there on your own. And it's very expensive to insure it and ship it. And if I don't do it properly with documentation, then I have to pay customs when it comes back to Israel. 
You know, if I just stick it in my suitcase and bring it over here, or if I send it through EMS, but I don't do it through a proper art shipper and it doesn't go through Israeli customs, then when it comes back to Israel, it's as if I'm importing something. Even though I say, I made it, it's mine. They're like, I don't care. You, you have no record of it going out. You have to pay to get it back in, um, which is a total pain in the neck. But that's the way it is. Um, so I'm working through this. It's challenging. I just wanted to explore your ability uh, to print your final works. I have a, a nephew who does electronic printing, and I will give him your email and see what you two can work out. Okay. okay. So digital printing um, for someone who does etchings is a little bit of a dirty word. No, it's okay. Um, but, for example, someone who has spent six months creating an etching, doing proof after proof, scraping, etching with the acid, working with it, is in a competition that's being judged with someone who basically took a good photo and sat down in Photoshop and two hours later had an amazing print. For those of us that work the old-fashioned way, it really pisses us off. Um, but it's the, it's the way of the world, and there are some fabulous digital prints. But it's really a different form of printmaking. Digital printmaking is different than traditional intaglio etching or silkscreen or lithography. These are labor-intensive ways of printing that require lots of proofs and lots of tests and lots of work by hand. So they're, they're both viable forms of artwork, but they're, to me, digital printmaking and, and traditional printmaking are two different animals. I think we have to wrap it up, but you'll, can you stay or are you running now to your next thing? Um, I'm supposed to get in an Uber and go to San Diego okay. now. I'm sorry. So just about, well, so let's, um, the only thing I will say is we have some adventures coming up with CSP Travel, so I'm trying to convince our artists to come with us and maybe do an art book of our trips. Who knows? Another thing to add to projects you're working on. So thank you for coming to Orange County and spending time with us. I will share your email of uh, materials to everybody in the group, and we hope you'll come back soon, thank and we wish you, you safe travels. Much.